chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5 today. If you're here for Sunday, Easter Sunday, I preached the end of the book of Matthew, and we ended with the Great Commission. We're going to see some of that fleshed out in this passage we're looking at this morning. If you ever miss a service and want to know what's going on, they are recorded. You can catch them on iTunes or go to our website, and it'll, it'll link you to hearing at least an audio of the service. So we're looking at the ministry of Jesus, Matthew chapter 4, the end of it. Let me ask you something. When you see somebody that you feel like is well off, what is it you're looking at? I remember as a kid, my parents would say, well, that person's well off. So I knew as a little kid, they're at the upper crust, they're top of the list, and we weren't on that list. I knew that. And then they told me one time, well, he's very well off. I said, so there's another list. And typically we're looking at him and we're thinking because of his money or her money, their job, the school they went to, the school their kids are going to, the clubs they're a part of, their house, their car, they're well off. It could be they're in debt up to their eyeballs and mortgage to the hill, but it could be that they've just been blessed financially. What we're looking at this morning is Jesus' definition of being well off. and It has nothing to do with money. Let's look at the first part of this passage Verses 23 through 25 of chapter 4. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So we're going to get into the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, but I wanted to back up to the end of chapter 4 just to give you a sense of the scope of Jesus' ministry. It says he was going throughout all of Galilee. How did he he go throughout there? He walked. Galilee was a huge region, and Jesus walked everywhere. But his ministry extended beyond Galilee. It extended to Syria. It extended to the Roman provinces of the Roman cities called the Decapolis. It, it extended to Jerusalem. It extended everywhere. One of the things Jesus said in the Great Commission is, you're going to be my witnesses. In Acts chapter 1, he says to his disciples standing on the hillside overlooking Jerusalem, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. So God sent his son because he loved the world, right? And so his son comes. He's called the disciples by now. We're into the end of chapter 4, and we see this ministry of Jesus. He has started doing what he's going to tell us to do before he leaves the earth, and that is he's telling people the good news. So it says, first of all, he's going throughout all Judea, teaching in their synagogues. That was Jesus' method initially was he would go to cities. The city had to be big enough and had enough men in it that they could establish a synagogue. But Jesus would go into the synagogue. He would unroll, and he was viewed as a rabbi, so they allowed him to do this. He'd unroll the scrolls, he would read it, and quite often what he would read to them was about himself. He would sit down, which was the posture of a rabbi. You know, I I don't sit down, I get up and walk around, I like to move a little bit, especially when I'm speaking to young people. See, I figured out if I move over here, your eyes have to move, so you're not nodding off, so that's part of why I do that. Part of it, I've just seen other preachers do it, so I thought maybe I'll try that. But he would sit down and teach. That was a position of honor and authority. You ever seen a preacher sit down? There are some these days that that preach from seats. When I was growing up, our preacher broke his hip skiing. 
And you're picturing him coming down the slopes, right? No, he was on the water. And so he had to come and sit on the stage and sit and preach. I thought, this is different. But that's what Jesus did. If Jesus was up walking teaching and it was more unofficial, but it was authoritarian or authoritative if he sat and spoke and he preached in the synagogues. So he's unrolling the scrolls and he's teaching. And it says not only did he teach, but he proclaimed. What's the difference? Teaching is to give information and explain what's already been taught. So he's explaining scriptures to them. Why? Because he wants them to know God. Jesus realized that the earth he's come to and the people he's ministering to had very wrong views of God. They were very religious, but they weren't following God the way God wanted them to follow him. So he, he taught in their synagogues, but he also proclaimed. That's an announcement. So not only is he taking scripture and unpacking that by teaching, but he's proclaiming. And what's he proclaiming? The gospel of the kingdom. The word gospel means good news. So what Jesus is saying is not only teaching from the scrolls, but now he's proclaiming everywhere he goes. He's saying the same things the angel said on the hillside. Remember the shepherds on the hillside at the day of Christ's birth? The angel said, behold, we bring you tidings of great joy. We bring good news. It's the gospel. And what is the gospel? Jesus Christ has come because he loved the world enough that he was willing to come live a perfect life, die on a cross so that you and I could know him. And so Jesus is proclaiming the gospel throughout all this region, and he's healing of disease. He's healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Well, what's the difference in disease and sickness? The word disease means maladies. It means illness. Sickness means softness or lameness. So Jesus is healing people who had internal sickness. He also is healing people who couldn't walk, who were blind, who, weren't, who were lame, and he's healing everyone. There's no time in Scripture. I want you to go back this week if you're challenging my thought on this. Find me an instance in Scripture where Jesus didn't heal somebody that came to him for healing. So Jesus is healing of every kind of malady. So it says large crowds followed him. Well, duh. Once the word gets out that if you just get to Jesus and you've got a problem, bring your friends, bring yourself, get there somehow, he's healing people. So large crowds followed him. And they were coming from ways way away from where he had been. He had been in the Galilee region, but how are they hearing about him in Syria? How are they hearing about him in those ten cities of the Decapolis? They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Instagram, Snapchat, Yik Yak, Fatty Whack, Give Your Dog a Bone. They didn't have any of those kind of things. So how did the word get out? Well, in those days, it was called the grapevine. Y'all remember that? I heard it through the grapevine. So somebody heard about Jesus. As they're traveling, they go back to their area and say, listen, there's a man, they call him Jesus. I don't know much about him, but I do know this. He's healing people. They're bringing people to him that have been blind since birth, lame since birth, and he's healing. They're walking. He's restoring sight to the blind. He, he's restoring walking to the cripple. He's healing people. And so large crowds followed him. And I can tell you, once the crowd got big, they wouldn't fit in a synagogue anymore. We now see Jesus' ministry and teaching ministry extend to the hillside. We know there's times he taught thousands of people on one occasion. So people are here about him, and they, they're coming to Luke chapter 4, verses 18. I thought I had it on my paper. I don't. But I want you to see this. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. This is quoting from Isaiah. So one of the things Jesus is doing by his teaching is fulfilling prophecy. The other thing he's doing by his healing is what? Fulfilling prophecy. So you get to verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's what Jesus was doing when he was going into the synagogues and opening up the scrolls. He would read passages like this and say, I'm the fulfillment of that. I've come to give sight to the blind and healing to those who need healing. So Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. He wants people to know God. He's announcing the good news. And he healed as divine verification that he is who he said he was. Now, what did the, what did the religious leaders say? Well, he's healing by the power of the devil. The devil doesn't heal people. The devil is one who oppresses people. Jesus is healing them. And the question will come, some of you are going to ask, is, is God still healed today? Have you been healed by God? There are people in this room that I've prayed for personally that I've seen miraculous healing of God. Yes, God still heals today. Yes, he still does it miraculously, supernaturally. Sometimes we pray and we forget to go back and even thank God because it just seemed like, well, it was a drug that he took. Where do you think they got the drugs from? Where do they get the therapy from? God is still in the business of healing people today, and so pray for people who need God's healing. Yes, he heals today. So that's the, the beginning of the word expanding. Let's read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5. And this is the, the beginning of the Beatitudes. So Jesus is teaching on a mountainside, and there's eight Beatitudes, and they start with the word blessed or blessed are they. Let me read verses 1 through 3, and I'll go ahead and read verse 4. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He also said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So Jesus, it says, saw the crowds coming and realizes, here's an opportunity for me to teach. And so he does that. He sits down. Do you remember that? Sits down in authoritative position. He was viewed as a rabbi. So he's there, probably hundreds if not thousands, probably by this time thousands of people. And you say, well, how do you know that? This is chapters 5, 6, and 7 is what's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the sermon, chapter 7, read what the people, if you look at the end, last couple of verses of chapter 7, the people look at each other and say, this guy doesn't preach like the people we used to hear him preach. He preaches as one having authority. They were overwhelmed. They were taken by Jesus and his teaching. They realized it was words of life. So I believe verses chapters 5, 6, and 7 are one sermon. Who knows how long it took to preach it? We're only hitting a few verses of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And, and I know you're thankful that we're not going to take all three chapters and take as long as Jesus would have taken. But we're going to, over the next few weeks, unpack these Beatitudes. So Jesus sees the crowd. He went up on the mountain, and he sat down. He opened his mouth and began to teach. When I read that this week, I thought, well, of course he opened his mouth to begin to teach, but I didn't know, and I've read in some commentaries, that's a colloquialism that they would use to say he was teaching. He opened his mouth and began to teach. And here's what he said, blessed. The word blessed means happy, fortunate, well off. We call this the Beatitudes, and that's a Latin word that means happy. So Jesus is saying, rather than look as the world looks and say that person's well off because they have the big house, the big car, the boat, the beach house, the job, the schools, the notoriety, the fame, Jesus is saying, that's not what makes you happy. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And keep in mind, some of the people he's preaching to 
were well off. Some of them were the religious elite. And for them to hear him change the price tags would have upset them. And ultimately, it's one of the reasons they would want to put him to death. So blessed, happy, fortunate, well off are the poor. The word poor literally means a beggar. Poor in spirit, beggar. Remember as a kid, I grew up in Macon, Georgia, and if we ever went downtown on Saturday, there was always a man there sitting down because he was crippled. He had a guitar with a cup on the end of it. And I asked my dad one day, I said, what, what's he doing? And he, my dad said, he's a beggar. I didn't understand that. But this guy was dependent on the free will offerings of people that would put some money in his cup so that he could eat that week and be back next week. Somebody had to bring him and, and place him there. But when you hear Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit, I want you to think of someone who's, who's begging. A beggar, now I realize there's professional beggars these days, but if you're genuinely a beggar, it's basically saying, I have nothing. I need everything. That's how God wants us to come to him, as a beggar. And it says in spirit, not just out, acting outwardly, but inwardly you realize, I am nothing apart from God. So blessed are you, happy, fortunate, well-off, if you're willing to come to God and say, God, I need you. I need you. Poor in spirit. Best example I have is Luke chapter 18. I'm not going to put this on the screen. I don't have it on the screen, but just listen. This is a parable that Jesus teaches. Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves, and they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> Can you see this guy praying this? Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So he's standing up proud and arrogant before God. God, thank you that I'm not like everybody else, including this guy who's coming here to pray with me. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the example that Jesus gives in Luke's gospel of what he's talking about in Matthew when he says blessed, happy, fortunate, well-off for those people who are poor in spirit. doesn't just mean you don't have money. It means that you come empty-handed before God and realize that you're desperately needy. You'll never be humble until you realize you come God to God empty-handed. So why is that so hard? Because it goes against everything in our culture. Everything in our culture says Stand on your own two feet. Pull yourself up by your own bootstrap. You've got this. And it goes against our human nature as well. To come to God admitting that you need it means that you don't have it. And that's the way we come to God. So I thought about that this week. Why is it so hard? What's the opposite of poor in spirit? It's arrogance. Folks, I meet people in ministry that are arrogant. I've probably been there myself. In fact, God's convicted me of that before. Of arrogance. Of self-reliance. So blessed are the ones who are poor in spirit. Blessed those who don't come to God from an arrogant standpoint, like the, the guy praying in Luke that says, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. I'm special. No, it's those who come poor in spirit. So how do you do that? So the next thought is learn to be humble. Now, <laughs> once you think you're humble, you're not anymore, right? You've heard about the preacher who said, I was going to preach a sermon on humility, but I'm waiting for enough people to come hear me before I preach it. Or the guy that wrote a book, My Humility and How I Attained It. But there are ways to learn to be humble, and he, he goes into that. First, he, first, one way we learn to be humble is to look to God. We take our eyes off ourselves, 
and see ourselves as compared to God. What we like to do, human nature, we compare ourselves to everybody else. Some of us actually think we're going to get to heaven someday, and God's going to say, why should I let you into heaven? And you're going to say, well, you let her in. Compared to her, I'm, I'm, you're blessed to have me. That ain't the way it's going to work. It's going to work for those who are poor in spirit who came to God and said, God, I'm desperately needy. You don't feed sin. One of the ways we feed sin is to look for the recognition of praise. I had a lady tell me one time, she said, I don't mind being a servant. I just don't want to be treated like a servant at church. Well, then you're not a servant. You're wanting the applause and approval of man. So don't feed sin. And then ask God. David in Psalm 51 says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So David understood, because David had sinned, right? Psalm 51 is all about him confessing his sin. He felt like he was a long way away from God. He's finally coming back to God, broken and empty-handed, and saying, Create in me a new spirit. What are some evidences of, of humility? Well, one, are you preoccupied with you? Anybody watch the um, draft, first round of the draft? You see the guy from Minnesota that took too much time, the producer had to finally come out and say, would you just read the card? What was he doing? He was talking about himself. He came there to simply say, in the 2022 draft, the Minnesota Vikings have chosen somebody from this school. He just went on and on about himself. Well, be careful that you don't feed and be preoccupied with yourself. Another evidence of humility is, can, how do you view other people? Can you see good in other people? If you can't, it's probably because you're the center of the universe and nobody stacks up to you. Our standard is God, right? Third thing, evidence of humility. How much time do you spend in prayer? Turning to God acknowledges need. And what is the substance of your prayer? Some people pray like a two-year-old. What do two-year-olds do? Gimme, gimme, gimme. What do they do if they don't get it? They cry. How much of our prayers is about gimme, 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 and how much of it is about God, if you never give me another thing, you've been good. Thank you for the blessings you have given me. God, I'm utterly and absolutely dependent on you. Fourth evidence of humility, do you praise and thank God for his grace and mercy? What does your worship look like during the week? Not just on Sunday mornings in church, but during the week. Do you praise God? Do you worship? I literally was speaking on worship to a group of students from West Virginia, and two girls walked up to me and said, we just think that's awfully arrogant of God to expect us to worship him. And when the youth pastor's wife heard that, she started weeping. And she came up to me and said, what do you think about that? I said, they don't know God. God is worthy of our worship. He's proved that. He's demonstrated. He's God for crying out loud, and you're not. So one evidence of, of our humility is the way we come to God in worship and prayer. And then there's the reward. In all of these Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are they who do this. And we are going to unpack what they're doing, but then there's a reward. And the reward is the kingdom of heaven. Thirty-two times in Matthew's gospel, he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. You literally have to stoop, bend down to be accepted by God. God accepts broken things. He doesn't accept arrogance and pride. He accepts the broken. Luke's gospel, chapter 12 verse 32 says do not be afraid little flock for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom that's why jesus came was so that you could know god and receive the kingdom of heaven what is the kingdom of heaven it's where god dwells we receive the presence of god not just by and by in the sky but even now blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven
this is the first beatitude, but it's the foundation for others. In fact, as we go through the beatitudes, they kind of build one on top of the other. So you've got to understand this one to get the next one. And we'll cover the next one. Blessed are those who mourn. The word mourn means to grieve. It's the strongest word. Jesus could have used other words for mourn in that language. There are about nine words that could be used to describe mourning. He used the strongest one that was indicated of death. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are so broken. It's like they're mourning over the loss of their best friend or their husband or their wife or their child. Blessed are those who mourn. David in Psalm 51 says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David committed a sin with Bathsheba of adultery. Then he had her husband put to death, so he's guilty of adultery and murder. Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him a story about a man. Well, he's talking about David. And David realizes, I've done wrong. I've sinned before God. And my sin is ever before me. I need God's mercy. So David mourned. What are some hindrances to mourning? You're not going to mourn if you're comfortable. If things are going well, you're insulated. So that, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn. There's some people who never mourn because they don't realize how needy they are. Or it could be a blind spot. You don't see as God sees sin. So how do we mourn? Remove hindrances. We love sin, right? We're not going to mourn over sin if we love it. We've got to ask God, God, allow me to see sin the way that you do. Because he hates it. He hated it enough that in order for him to forgive sin, Jesus had to come and die on the cross. Another way we know that we're mourning, besides the fact we view sin the way God does, we don't rejoice when other people fail. If you've grown up in a family where folks were kind of shame-based in their discipline, they rejoice. When, man, when you did something wrong, they jumped on you. You ever been in those environments? You're not mourning over sin when you rejoice over sin. Rejoice over someone's failure. So remove the hindrances, view sin the way God does, and pray. Ask God to give you the proper attitude to see sin the way he does. God taught me a lesson in this. Before I moved down here, I found out I was allergic to a drug called cephalosporin. My doctor had given it to me for years. But in a surgery situation, they were pumping me full of it, and I went into anaphylactic shock. There's probably a doctor or nurse in here, or maybe you've experienced this yourself. And so what they decided was, we've got to figure out what it was that put you in anaphylactic shock. Was it the latex and the the vein of the tubes that were in your body? Was it the cephalosporin? What was it? So I went, and here's how they, this is how medical science was back then. They start putting some of it on your skin. So they put some latex on my skin and just say, well, come back in five minutes and see if you're dead. No, they're going to come back in five minutes and see if, if there's a rash developing. Well, everything they tried didn't happen. But they said, we're going to ask you to go to the hospital and pick up some cephalosporin. I'm convinced, my doctor was convinced, that's what it was I was allergic to. And I didn't want to have it in the car with me. So I bring it back, and I thought, what are you going to do with this? He said, we're going to dilute it and put a little bit on your skin. Well, nothing happened. So they put a little bit under my skin. And I'm sitting there thinking, this could kill me. I want to be as far away from this as I possibly can. And that's when the light bulb went off. You ought to feel the same way about sin. This could kill me. I want to stay as far away from this as I can. Rather than having the attitude, I want to get as close as I can to sin without crossing the line. It ought to be there's a line. I want to be on the other side of the planet from that, as far away from it as I possibly can. Here's some evidences that you're mourning. You're sensitive to sin. David had godly sorrow. 
if you recognize in your life that you see sin in other people's lives or sin in your own life and it doesn't bother you, there's a problem. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are bothered by sin and its evidence and its um, effect. So you're sensitive to sin. You're also aware of forgiveness. And then where's the promise? The promise is the reward for those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn for what? They shall be comforted. One of the things as a pastor, when you see someone mourning at a funeral or an event where a life has been taken, you want to offer words of encouragement. Sometimes really all you can offer is just, hey, I'm here. I don't have anything to say that's going to change the outcome of the situation, but I'm here for you. And that's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. It's the word used of the Holy Spirit. It means to call along one side. It's hard to comfort somebody from a distance. And so God doesn't do that. When God comforts us, he calls us by his side, and he comforts us up up close and personal. So blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How many of you have ever seen a child that needed comforting? We have four kids, and God's given me illustrations by watching those four kids. When they were younger, especially the boys, they'd run in the house. Something had happened. I don't know what it was, but they'd gotten hurt or something. But they're dry-eyed coming, where's mom? Well, mom's in the kitchen. Then they started crying. <laughs> it's like, we've got to find mom because dad's no good in this circumstance. So what are they saying, basically? I need to be comforted, and mom comforts like nobody else. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. You won't mourn forever. You're going to be comforted. So two Beatitudes we looked at this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want the kingdom of heaven? You want the presence of God? Come to him humbly. Second, blessed are those who mourn. You're probably already mourning. If you're not, you need to ask God, God, give me the same view of sin and lostness that you have. But blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me.